0: Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have you heard? Have, Have you heard? heard? Have you
1: heard?
2: Welcome to Have You Heard? I'm Jennifer Berkshire. Good I might I am welcoming my co host, Jack Schneider, back from a somewhat lengthy absence. Jack, where have you been?
1: It was a working vacation.
2: Jack, where have you been?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was down patting koalas and uh, spying Joey's in pouches down in Australia for a few weeks. Um, I gave a talk at the University of Sydney, and then we decided since we were on a 14-hour time difference that we may as well adjust a bit and see a few things while we were there.
2: Well, you were much missed, and I don't know if you had a chance to listen to to the the episodes that I did while you were gone. but Avidly. Well, I I had kind of a, a history. Jealously. I had a history, Jones, and I I couldn't stop talking to education historians, and so uh, I interviewed historian Nancy McLean about her best-selling book Democracy in Chains, and then I caught wind of the fact that an education historian named Harvey Cantor was going to be visiting Gloucester, Massachusetts, where I live. Now I think you're familiar with Dr. Cantor. We'll call him Dr. Cantor. He is an expert. In social policy. And I think everyone in the world has the impression that the United States has figured out one response to poverty, and it is the schools. You can you can go back and you can find any president in recent memory saying that that schools are the ticket out of poverty. And I came across an essay that Harvey Cantor wrote and It kind of rocked my world. And basically what he does is he goes back to the period after the New Deal and he points to the specific moment in U.S. history where policy changed and it stopped being about responding to poverty directly and started being about what he calls educationalizing the welfare state. You're nodding away. I I thought for sure this must be something that you Wait, know about. You, you, You're an education you, historian. You had
1: already found a historian to replace me. <laughs> I assumed that Harvey <laughs> was going to tell you everything that I could possibly tell you.
2: Well, unfortunately, Harvey is based in California. We don't have the the budget for the the kind of hands-on production that this podcast requires.
1: Sure. Well, let me let me be a, a historian on call for you then, since you were kind enough to have me back after my sojourn. Um uh, so Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting when you go back uh, to the first half of the 20th century and even earlier, uh, particularly earlier, is that you see a smaller and smaller role for the state uh, and particularly for the federal government in education and much less emphasis on what education can do to promote national returns and returns to the state. Uh, So primarily the discussion about the importance of education, this would be in the 19th century as the common school movement is Uh, producing a public education system, more or less as we know it. Um, And into the early 20th century, the discussion is largely around uh, supporting democracy. Uh, In the 19th century, it's about supporting a fledgling democracy. It's about building citizens. Um, It's about instilling moral fiber in people, which of course always had a uh, racist and anti-Catholic and gendered bent to it. Um, but nevertheless, still a focus on character. Um, and you really don't see discussion about returns to, let's say, taxpayers until about the mid 20th century when the state and federal government begin to dedicate more resources to education. And so, you know, the point that I think is so interesting here is that today we accept it as uh, a a core purpose of public education, if not the primary purpose of public education. And that is that it should produce workers who will pay their taxes and not be a burden uh, through reliance on social services. But that, of course, is a relatively new phenomenon, historically speaking. And it's one that is very much, I think, a product of the fact that taxpayers had to be sold on some benefit to them if the state was going to be uh, pouring more resources into public education, more state funds, and if the federal government was going to be putting funds uh, into public education. That there was a kind of uh, zero balance sheet thinking here that uh, you know any money in must then come out. And of course, that isn't what... Education is particularly good at, education is particularly effective at uh, helping people become themselves, and not particularly effective at helping people become worker bees.
2: Can I just say that it's really nice to have you back? I've missed our time together in the time machine. But in the meantime, there's another historian standing by. So without further ado, let's get to the interview that I did while you were down under. Harvey Cantor is an emeritus professor from the University of Utah, and here he is describing how we came to see education as the solution to every economic and social problem in the U.S.
0: What I think started to happen in U.S. social policy uh, generally after the Second World War, and there are reasons why it happens after the Second World War, is there's a shift away ideologically from a focus on issues of economic security towards a focus on issues of economic opportunity. And central to that shift was a intensification of interest in education as the way to provide opportunity to people. It was all premised on the assumption that through Keynesian economic policies, you could create growth that would open opportunities to people and that the problem of inequality, poverty, lack of opportunity was due to a lack of skills on the part of um, African-American kids. They didn't pay too much attention to Latino kids then, but we could extend it to that and to poor white kids too. And it was really within that context That um, people start thinking about, well, if what we want to do is create more equality, increase opportunities for people, what we need to do is not provide so much economic security for them through things like social security, guaranteed income. Uh, They did talk about full employment, though they were never really able to to implement it in a fully successful way. They started to think about what do we do to get kids the skills that will enable them to escape what they called the culture of poverty. And education becomes increasingly central to that. And the place you really, you see it initially was something like the GI Bill. But the GI Bill didn't start out as primarily an education policy. It sort of transforms into that. But you see it then especially in the early planning of the war on poverty in the great society where human capital theory uh, as advanced by economists becomes central to the thinking about what Democrats are going to do around the issues of poverty uh, and inequality in the early 1960s. And so, if you compare it to the New Deal, which is where Bob and I started, you see that education becomes much, much more central, becomes moved from the periphery, as we've talked about it, to the center of thinking about how you address issues of poverty and inequality, whereas in the New Deal, that was not the case.
2: You argue that by making education the fix for poverty, we've ended up fueling disappointment with our public schools. A Disillusionment that you say is essentially misplaced. Explain.
0: As that happens, um, there's an intensification of belief, which is a long standing belief, about what education can accomplish. And the uh, result is that people r- begin to think, both in popularly but also from policymakers, that uh, if we do and make more and better education policy, we can uh, address these problems of poverty without having to worry about redistributing income and doing other kinds of things. And the result is that education policy, uh, except for some brief moments, begins to displace other kinds of social policies or eclipse them in importance, at least ideological importance. Uh, and so when people start thinking about what do we want to do to reduce poverty or increase inequality, you put more expectations on the schools. The result, of course, is greater disillusionment with the schools <laughs> because the schools can't do what they're being expected to do. And they certainly can't be expected to do those things without other social policies that help support them do those things. And I think that, in some ways, is at the root of some of the disillusion that we're seeing with public education now.
2: Recently, a New York Times columnist named David Leonhardt shared what he called our broken economy in one simple chart. It shows income inequality exploding in recent decades. And he argues that education is the answer. This is kind of a a regular theme of his. But you've been writing about how the overwhelming focus on education policy may actually be making inequality
0: worse. If anything, our belief that education policy is the solution to inequality has increased. And yet, as we've done that, inequality has actually gotten worse. But the paradox is that it is, in fact, the case that if you want to get access to a particularly a good-paying position, you do need to have a certain level of education. So how could it be that we have more inequality, and yet education can't solve that, yet education is necessary for an individual to succeed in this new economy?
2: That's an excellent question. So what's the
0: answer? Education is useful as an opportunity tool, but not as an inequality tool. And so education is being seized on because it is a way for a particular individual to gain access to a position, but it doesn't do anything to alter the allocation of the distribution of positions. You know, we may, it's like musical chairs. We might change who occupies the position, but we aren't changing the structure. Or to take another uh, metaphor, if we li- think about the rungs on a ladder, right? Education doesn't determine how far apart the rungs are on the ladder. It helps somewhat in determining who gets to climb the ladder. But the further apart the, the rungs get, education can't do anything about that. But if you don't have education, you don't get the chance to climb the ladder at all. So that's sort of the paradox that we have. And I think what's happened is education has become seen as a positional good or a commodity that identifies you in the marketplace and that's why people scramble for it so um so much but it goes along with also because our other social policies have become so attenuated so as those become attenuated education the focus on education becomes even more intense. The other thing, of course, that happens is that the more important education becomes as an allocator of people to positions because it represents certain kinds of positions, right? It's a commodity. Um, the people with the advantages scramble harder and harder to make sure that they keep those their advantage over those who don't. So it becomes kind of like a zero-sum game at that point.
2: I want you to talk a little more about the erosion of welfare-type social programs, but I'm also curious about where that idea comes from, the history of our reliance on public schools as really the place that takes care of kids in the absence of other social policies.
0: Oh, well, think about welfare, right? We no longer have a guarantee of um, income in terms of welfare policy. Uh, food stamps uh, have exploded simply because um, welfare no longer exists. Right, our housing policies have actually gotten less and less capacious. Right, in terms of providing uh, housing for people, uh, this is not a new pattern in uh, American social policy. It really goes back to to the New Deal, certainly, that we provide. We provide a substantial portion of our public services through private uh, providers, healthcare being the best example. I think one of the reasons there's been such a tax from the right on public schools is public schools seem to be one of the institutions that didn't follow that example. And to be even charitable, you'd say they're trying to turn it into that example, right, where you don't provide uh, the service through publicly governed Institutions, but you do it through privately run uh, 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 firms and corporations, and even nonprofit ones. But they're all individualizing. They're not saying we have a collective stake in providing public education to uh, on an equal basis to all groups in the population.
2: You hear the word competition bandied about a lot in the debate about how to fix our public education system. But I wonder if people have really thought through the sort of ferocious parent v parent contests that you argue ends up fueling more inequality.
0: It makes sense for parents to want to do everything they can for their children to gain access to the educational credentials that will benefit them in the marketplace. This is particularly the case because the more inequality has increased, the more uh, power it's gained within, within the marketplace, not because of the skills it necessarily represents, but because it represents a positional good that the market rewards. And within that context, it makes lots of sense that middle and middle upper middle class people continually try to maintain their advantage. Uh, At the same time that Latino and African-American parents say, oh, I want to have the opportunity to make those same choices too. The problem with that is on the educational side is that it increases competition between groups for access to the best schools without increasing the supply of really good schools for everybody. But on the demand side, the, the the economic side, it doesn't alter the forces that have created the vast inequalities in the distribution of income and wealth uh, in the first place. In fact, it just feeds right into it. Uh, and... What I think is interesting to think about that I've not seen people really write about is why this is so intense in the United States compared to other countries. And what we see, let's say, when we look at things like the returns to human capital in other countries compared to the United States, and they're all undergoing the same economic processes of change in the industrialized world. The returns to human capital in the United States are much greater than they are in other countries, and that's because other countries have made decisions about how to distribute income that minimize or reduce, relative to the United States, what the returns to human capital are are. So that's why you can't just say this is a matter of skills. It's a matter of social policy and the decisions we make about how we want to reward skills. Those are cultural and political decisions, not simply technocratic or economic ones.
2: In a lot of ways, this is really the debate that's playing out in the Democratic Party about how to respond to inequality and how populist the party should be. I have to say that when I saw that the motto for their better deal pitch this summer was better skills, my heart really sank. Can better skills save us?
0: The issue is, to my mind, that the growth of inequality is not basically a supply side. Issue. It's not. Doesn't have to do with the characteristics or the skills of people. Uh, there are a number of economists who argue, no, that in fact is the case. But I think that's wrong. I think it has to do much, much more with changes in institutional policies, like uh, deunionization, falling value of the minimum wage, the increasing impoverishment of redistributive policies, the freeing of the market from any kinds of, of regulation, tax policies that are actually redistributing income upwards, all these kinds of things are what really drive – and, well, the one other thing that I should add is changes in work and how work is organized, uh, subcontracting, uh, a number of policies like that are all working to drive inequality. Um, dispersing incomes further and further apart and the whole the whole uh, ideology of the democratic party since the end of the second world war is that we can create more equality without taking from some and giving to others and what we can do is just grow the economy more and more and increase the skills of people more and more and nobody has to give up anything in order to create more equality and that's we've seen that that it's just not going to work.
2: I titled this episode, Education Can't Solve Inequality. And one of the responses that I'm guaranteed to get is that, look, if you're going to argue that schools can't do anything, then how can you also make the case that we need more funding for schools? I'm outsourcing this final question to you, sir.
0: It's a really good question. I think that as the, as the uh, Democratic Party post-World War II... And liberals generally uh, emphasized education more. It did become a tool then for asking for more funding for schooling. And it's hard to think that you would get, let's say, something even like the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, uh, which put more money into schools, is it? inadequate as it was overall. It's hard to see a policy like that without saying education was really important given all the opposition that there was at the time for the federal government to provide more money for schools. So it's a good question, but I would say the argument is is not that schools can't do anything. Uh, The argument is, one, is that the schools are part of an ensemble of social policies, and they have to be seen as part of that ensemble of social policies. But also that uh, they can't be seen as a substitute for those social policies, and that's what we've come to do. And the more we do that, the more disillusionment we create with the schools, so it becomes counterproductive. The other answer is... Schools are about a lot of other things than they are about just in and they are just about increasing one's capacity to compete in the labor market. They're about teaching us about history they're about teaching us about economics they're about teaching us about literature about chemistry and those things are as important for us to learn and to to think about as just that education is going to um, increase your chances to compete in the labor market. And there's also a tradition within African-American education which thinks of education as a liberatory mechanism, as a collective mechanism for liberation of African-American and peoples of color that goes way beyond thinking about education just as a tool of economic opportunity. So there are lots of other kinds of reasons why we should think about uh Uh, putting more money into schools, though I would have to admit they're probably not as politically persuasive to people in Congress and other positions of political power as the one that says it's going to make the United States more competitive in world markets.
2: That was historian Harvey Cantor. He's the author of many publications about U.S. social policy. I recommend starting with the one that really opened my eyes. It's called Educationalizing the Welfare State and Privatizing Education, subtitle, The Evolution of Social Policy Since the New Deal. I'll put a link to it with this episode on the Have You Heard blog, and I'll be right back with another historian. So Jack, did you feel a bit sort of crowded out as an historian by my talking to another historian?
1: It it actually warmed my heart that you missed me so much that you went scouring the globe for other historians to fill my chair while I was away.
2: Well, our particularly devoted listeners will probably notice that, that Harvey Cantor talked about the change in the way we see schools in very similar language that that you used when you were the subject of our most recent episode. He said that we now see them as a positional good and that there's this kind of, there's a zero sum game playing out when it comes to who has access to the best schools and what they do with that access.
1: Yeah. And you can see this playing out in a lot of ways today and it's Particularly toxic uh, when it manifests in ways uh, like the pushback against affirmative action, which ends up uh really just seeming like a uh, manifestation of white privilege. Um, but really what it is is a product of uh anxiety that one person's success is coming at the expense of my child. And you see this around school integration uh, so there have been fights in neighborhoods where zoning policies have changed and parents have made a real stink because they paid a real estate premium to live in a neighborhood that gave them access to a quote-unquote good school and now kids were being bused into that school uh, for the purpose of integrating all the schools in the city. Uh, you see this as well in the way that parents consume educational data. Um, l- looking at test scores for instance, and often knowing that test scores do not measure school quality, uh, but nevertheless doing anything they can to try to secure an advantage for their own children because of course the game is no longer about how to... Uh, secure public education, high quality public education for all American children, it's not even about education at all, right? It's about securing an advantage. And this is of course, because if education is the way to get ahead, uh, you you don't play fair and you don't hold hands you throw as many sharp elbows as you can to get your kid a rung higher on the ladder than other kids. Even if those other kids were already uh, you know, a few rungs down, then you go ahead and step on their fingers.
2: Well, Jack, I for one want to say that it's really nice to have you back, and I'm looking forward to our, our second season of Have You Heard Together.
1: So you're inviting me back?
2: Well... Just so you know, I have a long list of of topics for us to address and we have already covered school quality. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and on that note, I'm Jack Schneider.
2: I'm Jennifer Berkshire. Thank you for listening to Have You Heard.